Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. We'll look this morning at verses 12 to 18, this last paragraph of this chapter. 2 Corinthians 3, 12. As I began to study this last paragraph of this chapter... Here's what I read in my very best commentary. This is how he begins his, his common, uh, comments on this section. The present section is no doubt one of the most difficult to understand in all Paul's epistles. This passage has spawned numerous interpretations and views. Consequently, the literature on this particular segment is vast. Wow, doesn't that just make you want to dive in? <laughs> and moving on to chapter 4. <laughs> well, the author was right. As I studied this, obviously I took another week on it last week. Virtually every phrase in this section, and sometimes every word of the phrase, is a subject of some dispute. We could certainly throw up our hands in despair studying this section. But at the same time, this passage is rich with truths which are indisputable. So I admit I will not solve all the problems I've encountered here. I don't know what to do with all the questions. But I hope to proclaim to you some of the most profound and wonderful truths to be found anywhere in the Bible, which clearly are here if you don't miss the forest or the trees. Let me read it. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. When everyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now this section very, uh, pretty obviously divides into three parts, verses 12 and 13, and then a long center section, verses 14 to 17, and then verse 18, kind of on its own. And so we have three truths that we want to learn from this, one from each of those sections. The first is this. The gospel makes us bold. The gospel makes us bold. Not many Christians are bold about their faith these days, it seems to me. The pluralistic culture in which we live has taken its toll. That culture says that all religions are equally valid and that only intolerant bigots would claim that their religion is more true than others. And so even we who believe in our hearts that Jesus is the only way to God often leave the boldness to assertive, brave, and articulate professional evangelists. 
But Paul begins this section by saying that the gospel, by its very nature, makes us all bold. Look again at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face. Paul says that the hope of the gospel, this new covenant that he's been talking about earlier in the chapter, makes us bold. And the boldness, or the word means openness or candor, of, of uh, his ministry is in contrast to Moses' ministry. Now he's talking here again about Exodus 34, which we referred to a couple of three weeks ago, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, and his face was shining so much that he had to put a veil and cover his face. says we're bold not like Moses who covered his face but that raises the question of why exactly did Moses cover his face back in Exodus 34 the Exodus account actually does not tell us it only indicates what he did he covered it when he uncovered it when he spoke to the Lord he uncovered it when he spoke to the people and then he covered his face in between Though it seems that that veiling didn't go on forever, for we never hear of it again after Exodus 34. But though Exodus 34 does not explain why Moses did that, here here in 2 Corinthians 3, the Holy Spirit, who is directing the Apostle Paul and guiding the Apostle Paul, does tell us why Moses did that. He veiled it so that the people would not see that the old covenant glory was fading. See it in verse 13? Look at verse 13 again. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Even as Moses came down from the mountain where he had his face-to-face meeting with God and where God had given him the law, Even as he came from the presence of God with the law of God, already he understood that the glory of it all was fading away. This is the contrast that Paul is presenting. While the glory of Moses' ministry of the law was fading from the beginning, Paul knows that the glory of the gospel will never fade. And that glory of the gospel, therefore, makes us very bold. Now, Paul's interpretation of Exodus 34 raises an important question. How exactly is the ministry of the law that Moses had less bold or less open than Paul's ministry of the gospel? At first glance, Paul's ministry doesn't seem even as glorious as Moses'. In the church that Paul is building, there's no temple worship. There's no priesthood. There are no ceremonies. Paul himself seems to be weak and broken and despised. And even these fledgling churches look like a motley assortment of misfits sometimes. Where's all the majestic traditions and the trappings of glory that were associated with life under God's law? But in reality, the glory of the gospel is more glorious than that of the law. 
For under the law, people heard God's word, but they only heard it through human mediators. But when Jesus came, they saw him face to face. They heard him speak. And even today, we don't just read God's word written by apostles and prophets, some ancient manuscript, but God's Holy Spirit reads with us and gives us understanding. Under Moses, people knew something of God's mercy, for they um, brought animals to sacrifice, and God accepted them. But in Jesus' death on the cross, God himself made full and complete atonement for our sin. Indeed, the Holy Spirit speaks forgiveness to our conscience and restores our souls before God. Under Moses, the people came to worship, but really the, only the priest ever went into the temple. And only the high priest ever went into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. But now through Christ, who dwells in the very real presence of God in heaven, every believer is invited to come to the Father and offer our petitions and praise. In fact, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and prays through us when we don't even know how to pray. You see, under the Old Covenant, there were layers and layers and layers of separation between God and his people. Layers of mediators and symbolic rituals and ceremonies. But in the New Covenant, God welcomes us into his presence through Christ. God's Spirit joins us to Christ as members of his own body, and he gives us his own Spirit to dwell within us with life-giving power. So is the ministry of the Spirit different than the ministry of the law? The ministry of the gospel that, Mo, that Paul had, is it different than the ministry of Moses? Oh yes, it's as different as the announcing that the governor has issued you a pardon is different than the warden telling you all the rules of your incarceration. It's as different as an invitation to be the president's personal guest at the Crawford Ranch for dinner is different from someone telling you how to fill out the forms to get food stamps. You see, it is glorious, this gospel. It is glorious with a gospel that outshines everything about Moses and the law, though that was glorious. And when you have really good news to proclaim like that, then what you wear, or whether you're impressive or not, or how eloquent your speech is, really doesn't matter much. What matters is the good news you have to tell. News which has the power to change people inside. And when you're such a messenger, you cannot speak too boldly or too plainly. The gospel makes us bold. Reminded of the story of the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, one of the greatest preachers that the church has ever had, probably. At age 15, Charles Spurgeon came home for the holidays and decided he was going to visit various churches until he found somebody who could tell him the way of salvation. And so he did. To no avail. Heard lots of sermons, but nobody told him how to be saved. One snowy morning, he had heard of another church some ways away, and he set out to go to that church and because of the storm, he wasn't able to get there, and so he kind of turned aside to some little alley, this is in England, and uh, into a little primitive Methodist chapel. The whole congregation that morning was 17 people. 
The preacher didn't show up because of the snowstorm. So finally a man stood up. Spurgeon says he was a tailor or a shoemaker or something. Stood up to preach. And Spurgeon realized even as a 15-year-old that this man had no training. In fact, he recalls that he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. <laughs> but his text was, look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And so this man proclaimed it boldly. Look to me, Jesus says. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, Jesus says. I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me, he said. I've ascended into heaven. Look to me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look to me and be saved. In fact, this man was so bold that he addressed young Mr. Spurgeon directly from the pulpit. Young man, you look miserable. Look to Christ Jesus. Look, you have nothing to do but look and be saved. And Spurgeon said, I saw the way of salvation. It was in Christ and simply looking in faith to him. And this teenager, converted by a non-preacher, went on to be one of the greatest preachers the, the, the church has known. Because some unprepared, uneducated layman thrust into a situation because of the weather, understood at least this, that the gospel is good news and it makes us very bold to proclaim it. Now that's, what's, that's Paul's point here in regard to the opposition he's facing in the church at Corinth. They didn't think Paul was very impressive. Apparently he was not as impressive as some of the so-called ministers of the law that they knew. But Paul knew that what mattered was simply telling the wonderful truth of the gospel. Nothing about the law, not even Moses, could compare with such a glorious task. And therefore the apostle does not apologize, he's not intimidated, he does not cover up his intentions. Instead he's very open and he's very bold, not because he's impressive and winsome, but because the gospel is the power of God to change helpless sinners. Doesn't that make you want to tell somebody the gospel? Did you realize that you have in the simple gospel such a powerful and glorious message entrusted to you? Good news about Jesus' death and resurrection which can literally give people new life. From time to time, people ask me, do you read the law every Sunday at the chapel? Well, my answer is always the same. No, we don't always read the law, but we do try to preach the gospel every Sunday. For as important as the law is to show us our need of Jesus, the gospel is infinitely more glorious. It's the power of God for salvation. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now why is all that so important? Well, it's important because of the desperate situation in which mankind finds itself. Which brings us to our second point, which is this. Only Jesus can fix your heart. Only Jesus can fix your heart. 
many metaphors which we might use to describe the desperate condition of people in sin, without God, without hope in the world. Here Paul uses two metaphors in verses 14 to 17. Two powerful metaphors to describe the desperate human situation. Blindness and slavery. Blindness and slavery. Without God, we are blind and enslaved, and only Jesus can fix it. Actually, Paul's discussion of Moses putting the veil over his face seems to remind him of this first metaphor about blindness. Look at verse 14 and 15. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Minds made dull, a veil covering their heart. Paul's talking about people being spiritually blind. Here Paul changes from a historic situation where Moses put a veil over his face to taking that veil and using it metaphorically to talk about spiritual blindness, which he observes in these people. You see, the problem in Moses' day was not just that he, he needed to veil the glory of the Old Covenant because it was fading. The problem that he faced was the hardness of people's hearts. His face was radiant when he came down from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai. But remember, this was the second time he had come down from Mount Sinai. The first time the tablets had been broken when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf that they had made in his absence. You see, they were not faithfully waiting for Moses to come with a word from the Lord. They were just acting like pagans. Hardness of heart. And even the second time when Moses' face was shining, what was their response? Well, they didn't want to come near him. They turned and went away. Only with great difficulty did Moses convince them to come and to hear what God said. You see, the problem wasn't Moses' shining face. The problem was the people's hearts, they did not want to hear the truth. They were afraid of what God had to say. Reminds me of that famous Jack Nicholson line from the movie, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth! That's how the people were. Can't handle the truth of God. Well, that had been repeated again and again in the, ancient, the history of ancient Israel. When God appeared the first time at Mount Sinai, we read, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Then when Moses came down with the second set of tablets, his face shining, they again hid their faces and wouldn't come near. And the same thing continued to happen. God appeared in human flesh. The Apostle John tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. But how did God's people respond when the glory of God appeared in their midst? They wouldn't accept Him. They didn't want a Messiah like Jesus. Even when He did wonderful things, they rejected Him. I'm reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and I came this week to Matthew's account of Jesus healing the two men possessed by a legion of demons. 
They were such wild men that they couldn't restrain them. Even chains wouldn't hold them. They'd break the chains. Jesus came and he drove the evil spirits out of them into a herd of pigs. Well, people from town heard about this and they came running and found these men, these wild, crazy men, found them dressed and in the right mind and carrying on a conversation with Jesus. Wow. How did you think the people from town responded? They said, Jesus, would you please leave? Please leave our area. They want him. That's a hard problem, folks. Even in Paul's day, even after Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead, people are still hardened to him. Specifically, he says, every Sabbath day, they meet in the synagogues and they read the Old Covenant. They read the scriptures, the very scriptures which predict Christ's coming. The scriptures for which the apostle proved that Jesus is the Messiah. But when the old covenant people read them, it's just like a veil is over their minds. They read the words, but that's the point. They hold the law in highest esteem, but they reject and despise the one that the law is talking about. And folks, it still happens. Every week. Not just in Jewish synagogues, though that's certainly true. In Christian churches as well. God's law is read and held in highest esteem. With somber reverence, people listen who would dare do otherwise. With diligence, they labor to live good lives and be faithful in attendance at worship. And with equal diligence, they condemn those who don't. And that's the essence of their Christianity. Fear God. Keep his law. Separate from those who don't. But you see, that's nothing but old covenant living. Even when it's done in Christ's name, it misses the point. It ignores God's grace. It doesn't see the radical newness of the gospel, which turns everything upside down. It relies on man-made efforts to keep God's standard rather than on the resurrection power, the life-giving power of God's Spirit. It circles the wagons to protect our little religious community and keep it pure, instead of taking the good news out to a hurting, desperate world and permeating it. Indeed, it has no good news to tell, only rules and condemnation for those who fail to measure up. Could I be describing you? Could it be that your whole church experience is just trying to keep the rules? Could it be that you've never tasted of the sweetness of the grace of God? Could it be that with all your years of church experience, you still are blind to the gospel? I tell you, only Jesus can fix your heart. Remove the blindness. Won't you ask him to do so? Those who turn to him have the veil removed. When Jesus changes us, it's like being set free from slavery. That's Paul's second metaphor here to describe the desperateness of our situation. 
We see it in verse 16 and 17. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, Jesus removes the blindness. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, Jesus frees us from the slavery. Now this is a difficult subject, for what slavery is the apostle talking about here? Well, it must be the same thing as having a veil over your heart, a dull mind, and what was that? Was life under the law without the knowledge of Jesus. Here Paul calls that slavery. Just like he does in Galatians. Life under the law without the knowledge of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Oh, but the law is good. The law shows us God's righteousness. How can the perfect commands of God be considered slavery? Well, the best explanation I found from that comes one that comes from Pastor John Piper. Some of you know of him. Let me just read his explanation of this text that we're talking about here in his his own words. He says, I think what he means is this. What the people saw, by and large, as they looked through this veil was a kind of law that enslaved them rather than freeing them. They interpreted the law as commandments of God load on them from outside without any spiritual transforming power inside of them to give them the desire to keep those commandments. And that's the meaning of slavery. Slavery is when you get commandments from the outside that you don't want to do on the inside. The result is either rebellion or legalism. You either say, I reject your commands, or you say, well, okay, I'll try to measure up and go through the motions, external obedience. And there's no real delight in the commandments when there's no want to, that's slavery. Now the antidote to that kind of slavery is the internal transforming power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says here. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. This is what the new covenant is all about. The enabling power of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside so that we love the law of God. We love his commandments. The reason the Spirit gives freedom is that the Spirit gives internal transformation that gives us the desire to do what God wants us to do. Freedom is wanting to do what you're commanded to do. So God says, love your neighbor. The Spirit inside us is working the fruit of the Spirit, which is love then it's not slavery to love your neighbor. It's what you want to do to love your neighbor. That's freedom. Freedom is my desire being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord so that when God commands me to do something, my whole heart says, yes, Lord. That's freedom. But this morning I tell you the truth. No one can do that in your heart except Jesus. No one but the life-giving spirit 
of the Savior can so transform us from blindness to sight, from slavery under external burden of commands to a heart that loves and wants to do God's will, freedom of the Spirit. Only Jesus can fix these hearts. This morning I call you to trust him. I call you to come to him. Put your faith in him. To turn him. You will never fix things. You come just like you are and ask him to do what you cannot do. And then what? Well, it brings us to our final point which is this, you will be, become what you behold. You will become what you behold. Several years ago, the little expression, you are what you eat, became a popular slogan, still is to this day. Uh, who started that, somebody with nutritional concerns. Don't eat food contaminated with all kinds of foreign things because you are what you eat. Makes sense? Well, here the Lord has an even more profound premise. You become what you behold. Now, I know behold is not a very common word, except if you're reading ancient English literature. <laughs> so I try to find a better word, like watch, or see, or look intently at. They didn't have the same ring. So it's behold. So let me give you a little definition of behold. Here's how behold differs from just see, for example. Behold is from my dictionary. Behold implies a directing of the eyes on something and holding it in view, usually stressing the strong impression made. Now that's what God's talking about in verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect or behold, I'll talk about that in a minute, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Or as I would sum it up, you are, you become what you behold. Actually, there's an interesting play on words here. That key word, this uh, translated reflect in the New International Version, which many of you have, can mean reflect as in a mirror, or it can mean behold or contemplate. And so I read pages and pages and pages of a discussion, might I say argument, about which it is. I think it's both. It's a play on words here. What is it that we are to behold? The glory of the Lord Jesus, who is made known to us in the gospel, in the new covenant. Look at this. Focus your attention. Wow. And what happens when we contemplate Jesus in glory? We begin to reflect that glory. We become more and more like him. For you become what you regularly behold. 
Actually, the promise is quite profound. When we behold Christ, when we fix our attention, or fix the eyes of our faith on him, we are transformed. That's an interesting word. The Greek word, which you will recognize immediately, is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. Or for you with more modern ears, morph. When we behold Christ, we are morphed into his image. And this is a present tense in the Greek, your little Greek lesson, which means not just that it happens right now, but it continually keeps on happening. We are continually being morphed, continually being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory from one glory to the next, to the next, to the next. Folks, according to Romans 8, 29, that's why God chose us. That's what he was up to in the very beginning. In Romans 8, 29, we read, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be, what? Conformed to the likeness of his Son. It is toward this purpose that God has promised to work everything together in our lives. He wants to make us look like Jesus, which is going to take major transformation. But it's not just a promise, it's also a command. There's one other time in the Bible that this verb, metamorpho, is used, and it's in Romans 12, too. And there, it's not a passive, it's an imperative, a command. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God promises to conform us to the glorious image of his Son, but he commands us to have our minds renewed, for that's how he's going to do it. It's all God's doing, but you must give attention to it. And how do you do that? Well, we behold the Lord in his glory. How do we behold him? Well, how do you behold anything that you can't see with your eyes? How do you focus on knowing your wife? You could do that even if you were blind, you know. How do you focus on the goals and plans for your business? How do you focus on anything you care about? Well, you give attention to it. You seek to know everything you can know about it. You spend time on it. You concentrate on it. You think about it. You mull it over in your mind in between everything else. And you don't do things which you know will destroy what you're working on. The same thing's true of beholding the glorious Christ. It takes time. It takes attention. It demands that we put aside other things. You won't get this watching television or surfing the net. Specifically, James says we look in the mirror of his word. That's where we find him. And as we do, God changes us. Little by little bit by bit, but certainly transforms us, morphs us into Christ's glorious image. For we will become what we behold. On Sunday nights, we're beginning the study of the Sermon on the Mount, that most profound teaching of Jesus. As some of you know, last week I challenged you to join with me in memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
Don't tell me it's difficult. I know that. I'm already trying to do this. Of course it takes time and concentration and review and careful thought. So why do it? Why spend so much time? Why always have this thing in your mind? Why carry a piece of paper around to review, review, review? Why? Because there we see Jesus. He's the personification of what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who is poor in spirit and meek and merciful and persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is an opportunity to behold him. Not as we might dream that Jesus would be. You can find that on the internet. Dreamy little things about what God's like. But in the radical difference that he really reveals himself to be in the sermon. Because as we behold him, we will become like him. Well, this is an interesting section. Powerful, profound text full of difficulties. Yes, I still don't understand everything. I admit it freely. But teaching us at least these three profound truths. That the gospel makes us very bold. When we understand the radical newness of what God has done in sending his son Jesus, we ought not to be able to keep quiet about it. For this is the power of God to change people. And in fact, Jesus is the only one who can fix our hearts. The world is blind. The world is enslaved. Even the most religious people, even churches full of people are blind and enslaved sometimes because they've not tasted the glory of the grace of God in Jesus. And then what do we do? What's our life to be? Well, as we look unto him to be saved, we keep looking because we will become what we behold. He transforms us as we know him more and see him more clearly. May that be our experience here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text, which is so difficult in many ways and yet so profound in what it has to teach us. Oh, Lord, uh, we've recovered more ground than we can even comprehend. But as we think about it, as we mull it over in our mind, as we behold you and the glory of your word, I pray that you would teach us and change us, give us understanding and cause your word to grow like a seed into a productive plant that bears fruit for you. Oh, Lord, we want to be changed, to be like our Savior. So we ask you to work in us to that end. In his name we pray. Amen.